Oh, amen and good morning. Good to be with you. I uh, got to at nine o'clock be with a bunch of our men, about 50 guys or so, got together for breakfast next door. And uh, there's just a group of like really great guys leading out, launching some groups and stuff like that. And so uh, stay tuned. If you weren't there, if you missed the breakfast, I'm so sorry we missed you. But uh, you still can get involved in some of the stuff that's happening. So look for that in your bulletins. Um, I want you to find your way to the book of Zechariah. Now, this is probably in the like sticky part of your Bible because you haven't opened it very much. So like, find your way. I'll give you some time to get there. Uh, but to the book of Zechariah, we're going to be there for these next two weeks. And while you're doing that, uh, let me ask you a, a question. Let me ask a question of the parents in the room. Parents, why do you give your kids chores? Why do you give your kids chores? I heard an answer. Uh, kid, like kids, like, yeah, I'd like to know. Why do you give me chores? Is it, as parents, because kids are so good at chores? No, definitely not. I am the only person in my whole house who knows how to load the dishwasher correctly. It is a cross that I bear. I'm starting to think they're doing it on purpose. Maybe. Anyway, okay, so it's not because they're so good at chores. Is it because, as a parent, you're like, I just love trying to get my kids to do stuff that they don't want to do? Like, is that rewarding for us as parents? No, right? That's also not it. So why do we give them chores? Let me answer my own question. I think it is because, as a parent, you have a vision for your kids' lives. Like, right? You want them to grow as people, right? You want them to be healthy people who know how to navigate life well. They know how to navigate relationships. And you know this as a parent that on some level, if you do everything for your kid all their life, they're not going to turn out that well, right? Or maybe that's the, the negative way of saying it. If I said it positively, I'd say this. Parents, you know that learning how to help others and take responsibility for things is like a baseline requirement of being a healthy, functioning adult. And so because of that, you give them chores. Because you know that the job of a parent is not to produce happy children. You, like parents, you know that's not your job. The job is to produce a great adult. That's actually the job of parenting. And, right, and so like chores make very unhappy children, but they do make better adults on some level. Now, I bring this up because I just want to observe this fact. If I were to ask your kids the same question, why do your parents give you chores? They wouldn't say any of that, right? Uh, kids don't feel that. Kids would say, I don't know, because they're unfair because they want me to be miserable. If your kids ever hit you with this, I feel like I do all the work around here. <laughs> kids are adorable. They'll never understand why we ask them to do chores until they have kids of their own, and then they'll be like, oh, yeah, I get it now. And so what I think is true worldwide, probably in every home around the globe, this powerful spiritual principle is at work. The process of helping a child become all they were created to be is almost never understood by the child until long after the fact. Isn't that true? 
You might see this in your home if you have kids. If you don't have kids, I bet we all have seen this like in the family we grew up in. I bet our parents did something and when we were a kid, we're like, mom, dad, why are you doing that? But now as an adult, we're like, oh, I can see how that was beneficial. I want us to think about this principle, not in uh, you know, relationship to an actual family, but I want us to consider this for a second in our relationship with God, okay? Uh, so often... God will ask us to do some things that might feel to us the way that chores feel to a child, right? And we might even respond to God the way a child would respond to a parent who doesn't want to do chores. And I was like, oh, you want me to love and forgive people? Oh, oh. you want me to treat people as if they have inherent dignity because they're created in your image? Do I have to do all the work around here, God? And I know we're not children, and I'm not trying to insult us, but I just, I wonder if from time to time, we might relate to God like a child would relate to a parent who doesn't understand all the reasons that a parent is asking them to do something. And I think God is similar to that good parent who realizes that their goal is not just to create a happy child. God's goal, like we understand this, right? God's goal is not to make happy people. That's not what he's at or about with humans. If that was his goal, could we just all say he's going about it all wrong, right? God's goal is not to create happy humans. God created us for something extraordinary, far better than momentary happiness. God created us with this incredible purpose And just because we've walked away from that doesn't mean that he's ever forgotten it. And so his goal in our lives is to reawaken that thing that we were created for and to reconnect us to it, to help us rediscover all that we were created to be. And the truth of it is this, is that most of us, maybe in the moment, may not understand or appreciate what he's doing in our life until after the fact. We've been in the Minor Prophets all year. Do you see maybe this theme in the Minor Prophets? That God's like, hey, guys, I want you to do this stuff over here. And the people are like, oh, God, you're the worst. Um, And they never really appreciated what he was trying to do to help them grow up into who they were created to be. We're to the final three minor prophets. They're called the post-exilic prophets. And they're called that because after years of God coming to his people saying, would you please embrace this dream? Would you please embrace this amazing thing that I've created you for? Uh, And they kept saying, no, 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 no. And so finally God stepped back and said, okay, I'll leave you to your own devices. And what that meant was they were captured and taken into exile in Babylon. But before that, for like a thousand years, God kept coming to his people and saying, hey, I have this dream for us. You can read the dream over in Exodus 19, but the short version of it is it's this dream that you would be my treasured people, that you would be like this covenant people, and it'd be me and you together, and we would build this society centered on the character of a loving God where everyone had worth and dignity and everyone was valued and that's what we were created for as humans to be in that sort of a culture, that sort of a society. And God kept bringing that to the people and saying, hey, could you step into this with me? Could you step into this with me? And, uh, you know, at, at first when he brought it to them, they were like, wow, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, we'd like to step into that with you, God. That sounds amazing. And then God's like, awesome. I'm so glad that you're on board with this. Uh, I need you to do the dishes. And the people were like, oh, we did the dishes last week. Do we, are, are there more dishes today? How did that happen? Can you ask my brother to do the dishes? I don't want to do the dishes. 
And God's like, listen, I know you don't understand, but there's some stuff that if, like, I, I created you for this, and if you could just learn to take responsibility for this and to step into this with me, and we could create this incredible, you my treasured people, it would be this incredible society that you would long to live in, but I just need those dishes done, so could you just do the dishes? And God's people were like, or, or, God, wait, hear us out. What if, instead of doing the dishes, we didn't do the dishes? And instead of doing the dishes, we went and we found another family and we lived with them because they never made us do the dishes and we would call them mom and dad. Is that an option? Are you getting the metaphor? I'm not talking about dishes. <laughs> Some of my own parenting angst might be creeping out into the metaphor, but it's not, so it's not dishes, right? Like what God asked of the people was stuff like this, take care of the poor. That was the chores, right? It, it was stuff like stop exploiting people who don't have power. Um, and it, it wasn't like that they said, hey, we're going to run away from home and go find a new family. In fact, what they said is, how about we just stop wor- start worshiping these other gods that are out there because they don't require us to take care of the poor. They did require stuff like child sacrifice and all sorts of evil, awful, horrible stuff. But they didn't require that stuff that God kept calling his people to. And so they started worshiping these things. And so for a thousand years, God was saying, would you, just, would you please stop that? Would you please just come home? Would you please just come home? And I know there's dishes at home, but there's a lot of other good stuff there. So would you just step into this amazing dream that I have for us together? And after a thousand years of saying no, God finally said, okay, I'm going to stop chasing you. And he stepped back. And what that meant was the empire of Babylon came to Jerusalem, 587 BC. Uh, They destroyed everything, captured most of the Hebrews and took them back to Babylon. Now, if you fast forward about 50 years, The Persians conquer the Babylonians, and a man named Cyrus is king, and he issues this decree in 538 BC, allowing the Hebrews to return to their land, and over the next hundred years, there's a wave after wave of Hebrew refugees that come back to the area around Jerusalem and try to resettle and reestablish their nation. So if you know the Old Testament guys like Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, these are major leaders during this time that kind of helped God's people reestablish this nation. And the spiritual leaders of the day were these three guys, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Or the, that was three of them. They were prominent leaders. Um, we're going to look at Zechariah for these next two weeks. Uh, and that is the moment that he's stepping into. After years of this push-pull back and forth between God and his people, the people are finally back in the land, and Zechariah is going to speak to them about this moment in time. Listen to what he says. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Um, I love it when they tell us exactly what the book's going to be about in the first sentence here, right? Return to me, and I will return to you. That's what he's writing about. And uh, if you're making a chart at home, you'll note from the dates there, this is about two, I, I know you're not making a chart at home, but if you were, this is about two months after Haggai starts prophesying, all right? So the date is very specific. And because of that, we know this interesting little fact about Zechariah. When he gives this first prophecy, he's about 16 or 17 years old. 
Now, he's a priest at this point, or he's training to be a priest. And the book starts, chapters 1 through 6, it is these eight visions that he had in the middle of the night when he was about 16 or 17 years old. And he tells you what these visions are ultimately about. They're about inspiring people to return to God. Um, Now, the visions themselves are pretty weird. I'll let you read them on your own. There's all sorts of apocalyptic imagery, which we'll we'll talk about some of that next week. Um, But the goal of the visions is not weird at all. The goal of the visions is to convince the people to return to God, that they have a future with God. Life is incredibly hard for these people right now. They're trying to rebuild this nation. They're experiencing a lot of opposition. Uh, They're discouraged. They're wondering, does any of this even matter? Should we even try? Should we rebuild this temple? Does it even matter? And Zechariah is saying, no, there is a future here. God has this future for you. Step into it. Now, about two years after his first set of visions, he has another vision. Turn over to chapter 7. This is where I want to focus. Chapter 7 and 8 is the second vision of Zechariah, or the second series of visions. Um, and it's fascinating. It, like, it, I'm just, I just want to focus just on chapter 7. This is a, an incredibly precious chapter given to us in the Old Testament, in the middle of a pretty weird book. Listen to this. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. So again, very specific dates here. So by this we know he's about 18 or 19 years old. This is around 518 BC. What's notable about that is they're about halfway done rebuilding the temple. So the first temple was destroyed. They come back, they start rebuilding the temple. It's about halfway done in 518 BC when this happens. The people of Bethel, had sent Sherezer and Regamelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? So what's happening is there's some uh, Hebrew leaders from just north of Jerusalem, and they travel down to Jerusalem, and they come to Zechariah, and they say, we have this question for God. Will you ask God this question for us? Now, the reason for the question is the original temple, the amazing temple of Solomon that was beautiful, it was destroyed by the Babylon, uh, Babylonian Empire, it was destroyed in 586 in the fifth month. So in exile, the Hebrews were like, man, this, we obviously blew it because the whole temple got destroyed. So to make up for that, to show God we're so sorry, is a penance for the ways that we've blown it in our relationship with God. We're going to fast every anniversary in the fifth month of the anniversary of the destruction of the temple. This was not something God asked them to do. So God's going to be very clear about this. This is something like they just came up with on their own. They're like, we feel so bad, so we're going to do this fast thing. So now this guy from north of Jerusalem comes to Zechariah and he says, listen, temple's halfway being built. Do I still have to do the fasting thing? Is that still a thing? Should I still do that? Imagine this. Um, Hypothetically, a a child gets in trouble for fighting with his brothers. Just imagine something like that could happen. Um, And the father grounds the child for a week, right? Um, The child does not like being grounded for a week, and he's like, well, what can I do to shorten this grounding? That's a pretty stiff punishment that my father's given me there, so I know what I'll do. I am going to help with the dishes every night this week, and maybe I'll get out in five days or however long. It'll just be shorter. It won't be as intense, right? Uh, So sure enough, the child does that, but it doesn't shorten the punishment at all. Seven days rolls around, and at the end of seven days, the child goes to the father and says, Do I have to still help with the dishes? What would the father say in response to that child? 
You might say, I never asked you to help with the dishes. That wasn't a part of the punishment. Is that the only reason you've been helping with the dishes? I thought you were being kind. I thought you were loving. You were just doing that to shorten your punishment? Here's an idea. Instead of doing things I never ask, why don't you do the one thing that I ask? Stop fighting with your brother. How about that? Would you do that? Hypothetically. (laughs) That's basically how God responds to this question. Look at verse 4. And the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priest, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the word the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and his surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? So hear what God is saying here. He's basically saying, I never asked you to do that stuff. Don't come to me like I've commanded this because I didn't. You did all that stuff for 70 years for yourselves. It wasn't because you loved me or you were listening to me. You did it for yourselves. You were just trying to shorten your punishment. And then he says, how about doing the one thing I ask you to do? Look at this. Verse 8, the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow and the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. This has always been what the Lord wanted, right? How many times in the Minor Prophets have we read passages like this? This is what God has always asked of his people. There's nothing in there about fasting. It has never changed from Exodus 19 to the end of the Old Testament. It is this sort of stuff. One of the problems with the people of Israel, and I, like I would feel really like condescending towards them if I didn't see my face in it so much, is the people of Israel would often go to God, and we've seen this in the prophets, and they'd go to God kind of with this posture of, God, what do you want from us? Like, obviously you're not happy, so what do you want from us? And God would say, okay, for the thousandth time, love all those people. And they'd be like, well, fine. If you're not going to tell us, we'll just do what we want. And God's like, ah, I just told you. Um, And that's exactly what he's saying here. I'm putting a little bit of my own emphasis in the verse, but (laughs) it, it seems silly, except for the fact I see my face in this all the time. So in the Old Testament, God says, hey, okay, justice, mercy, compassion, don't oppress, don't plot evil. And the Israelites are like, yeah, but uh, we've been fasting. Is that okay? For me, it's it's maybe a little bit different. God's like, hey, radically, sacrificially, love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm like, or, hear me out. What if I read my Bible a lot and go to church? Does that count? Does that make you happy? Here's the problem with the Israelites, and I think we have this problem too. Most of the time, when we act like God is a mystery that we can't figure out, the real truth is we don't want to accept what he's really saying to us. That cuts me a little bit. When we act like he's holding out on us, when we act like, oh, just tell me, Lord, tell me what your will is for my life. A lot of times we just don't like what he's already said. Now, don't get me wrong. There's all sorts of things about God that are incredibly mysterious. I'm not denying that fact. God is incredibly mysterious to us as humans. Absolutely. There's a lot about God that is mysterious. What he wants for us is not one of those things. 
How many times have we read these words in the Old Testament? Justice, mercy, compassion, humility. Probably 20 times in the Minor Prophets at this point. Maybe 100 times if we'd read the whole thing. Justice, mercy, compassion, humility. In the New Testament, we see that these things are like foundational values to what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, this idea of what God is trying to establish on earth, that they're centered around those sorts of values. And so what is God's will for your life? Well, it is that you use the creativity and the intelligence that he's given you to live out those kingdom values. That's God's will for your life. I think we could write that down, take a picture of it. If he changes his mind, I'm sure we'll be the first to know. But until he does, I think we can, with confidence and with a degree of freedom, step into that stuff and say, well, how am I going to live those out in my life? I'm going to figure that thing out. That's his will. When we act, sometimes, like the Israelites are acting here, like we just, God, what do you even want from me? Like we can't even figure it out. Here's how it looks to God. Look at verse 11. This is God speaking again. But they refuse to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs. They covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. This is a very eloquent way of saying, I have told you so many times. And you're just covering your ears running around like you don't even hear it. I I think you do hear it. He's describing us as like a child sometimes because that is, I think, how we relate to him. Verse 13, when I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate that no one traveled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. So God's saying, this is how we got to this point. I invited them into mercy, compassion, justice. I invited them into this again and again and again, and they just, no one would listen. They said, we're fasting. That's good. Um, And so after a thousand years of that, God said, listen, I'm not going to force this dream upon you. I'm just not going to force you. And he left them to their own devices. They were exiled. Now they come back, and he's saying to them, listen, I'm willing to try again. I'm here for you. Remember, this is the beginning of the book. Um, we're going to end in, in chapter 7 there, but let's go back to, to chapter 1. Zechariah says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I'll return to you. So what God is saying through all of this is, listen, I know that you've shut me out. I know that you've resisted me. I know you've done all this sort of stuff. But if now you're ready to embrace kind of this partnership that I've, I've dreamed of for years with you, I'm willing. I'm totally willing. Let's step into it. I'm willing if you're willing. And I think what Zechariah is doing through his prophecy here is really just warning the people. And I think this is the warning that we probably need to hear as well. There are two ways to refuse God and keep him at a distance. The first is disobedience. The second is, it has to do with all this fasting stuff that's been going on. It's religious activity. It's a way to refuse God and keep him at a distance. Now, we all know what disobedience is. God says, hey, I have this for you. This is what I've created you for. And we're like, no, I want to do this over here. That's disobedience, right? But what we're seeing with Israel here is the way that they were resisting God is actually this, it's an incredibly efficient way to resist him. It's by doing things that convince yourself and others that you're actually saying yes to God. 
That's what the Israelites were doing. They're doing all these religious activities, the feasts, the fasting, the sacrifices, all of it. But like the one thing that God asked them to do relating to loving people who didn't have any power, they didn't do. So to put it in our culture, I think maybe I would say this, um, like we could picture someone who goes to church regularly, reads their Bible regularly, he could quote it to us, knows how to pray, identifies real strongly with this word Christian, like that's what I am, leads a very respectable life, but really rarely spends time with people who are struggling, who have major sin issues in their life or just issues in general. Doesn't spend much time with the vulnerable. Doesn't have a lot of friends who are, you know, experiencing exploitation or hardship in their life. More often feels resentment and frustration towards people than curiosity and affection. And so you have that person with a lot of religious activity, but very little of that sort of fruit that are the core values of the kingdom. I'm not just throwing stones here. I, like, I'm a pastor. My life is chock full of religious activity. Um, it is a, a hardship to overcome, seriously. Have you ever, um, have you ever like, been to church or like a small group or some like, religious thing you know, that's about connecting with God and growing and then cussed out a driver on the way home? I have. It's eye-opening, right? How that religious activity does not really always produce the life change that God is after in us. Religious activity is not the same as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. Like, we we should not conflate those two. We have to stop thinking of religious activity as inherently virtuous because God doesn't. He's very critical in scripture about religious activity sometimes. What God is looking for is actual love. That's what he's looking for. That's the fruit that he's like, this is the thousandth time I've told you this. That's what he's looking for. And anything less than actual love is honestly, it's just creative disobedience is I think what I call it. And as humans, we've, we've mastered that art of creative disobedience. And then we go to God and we're like, hey, I've been fasting forever. Do I still need to do that? He's like, no, I, it, it was never about that. There's another thing that I think is really important related to this fasting that was happening uh, in the nation of Israel. Uh, you understand this, they, they were fasting as a penance for past mistakes. I don't know how familiar you are with that word penance. It just means they're trying to make up for what they have done, right? Like they've, they've done something wrong, they're trying to make up for it. They're trying to show God, look how sorry I am for all these things that I've done. Let me say something that you may initially want to resist because it sounds untrue, but it is gospel truth. God never asks us to make up for what we've done. Never. Never. What God says to us is, Jesus Christ paid it all. He made up for what you've done. God never asks us to make up for what we've done. The problem with this idea of penance is it is like the chief of spiritual activities because it feels so spiritual. It feels like we're doing something so good, making up for past mistakes. But you know what penance actually does is it denies the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. God doesn't believe in penance. 
Do you know who does believe in penance, incidentally? The enemy. The enemy of our souls is a big fan of penance. The enemy of our souls, he's going to say things to us like, oh my gosh, look at all of that stuff. Oh, look at that, all those mistakes that you've made. You're going to add that stuff? What's happening to my microphone? Uh, I, I was channeling the voice of the enemy. Maybe that's a caution from, I don't know. But he comes to us with those messages. You better start making up for that stuff. Like, how can you think that you're worthy of the love of God when you've made all of those mistakes and you haven't made up for one of them? Like, you better start showing God that you're worthy of his love. Jesus loves you, and you're just, like, you're not going to do anything with all of that? That's how the enemy talks to us. But God doesn't talk to us that way. God says, listen, Christ alone. Jesus paid it all. You are now totally free from that past stuff and from those things that you're struggling with so that you can step into this life that I've created you for, this dream that I've had for you from the beginning. That's exactly what he was saying to those Israelites. Stop trying to make, just step into this stuff. That's always been what it's about. Just become the nation I've created you to be. And they're trying to make up for these mistakes their ancestors made. And God is literally saying to them, I never asked for that. And in fact, that effort is keeping you from the actual stuff that I want you to do. It's getting in the way. I love how Paul talks about this. And if you know something about Paul's past, you know what he's talking about here. He says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He's saying a lot there, but I think the crux of it is this. I I know about those mistakes. I will never make up for them. I will just step into the next thing God has for me. What he is saying is, is the same thing that God is saying to the Israelites. Stop trying to deal with the stuff that is fixed in the past and just step into the glorious future that I've created you for. And Paul, after finding faith, he hears the same thing from God. You, you cannot fix the stuff. It's under the blood of Jesus. So just step into the future that I have for you. And there's this thread in scripture that is in the entire book from page one to the last page, that when we have this impulse to go to God groveling on our knees because we're such wretched sinners, God's response consistently is, would you please get up? I didn't ask you to grovel. Would you just get up? I I created you for something extraordinary. That's why I died for you, so that you could get up and step into it. No, No, would you just get up? That's what Zechariah is saying. And I think because of that, I feel led to kind of close with this hard question. Here it is. What is the sin or issue in your life or in your past that you're really hanging on to? What is that thing? What's that thing you're struggling to forgive yourself for? Would you hear Zechariah's words to you that God never asked you to hang on to that? Like your guilt... And your shame over past mistakes does absolutely nothing for God. Nothing. 
All it does is just hurts you, keeps you from stepping into what he has for you. The only thing God ever asks of us when it comes to our past mistakes, and this is important, we need to note this, he does ask us to consider, hey, do we need to apologize to someone, make something right because of something that we've done? But understand, that is about restoring broken relationships. That's not about penance, right? That's about love. That's about cultivating healthy relationships, not about making up for past mistakes. Just quite simply, we were not created to carry shame and guilt, It's the enemy who wants us to. God doesn't see you as your sin. Not for no reason. He doesn't see you as your sin because of Jesus, because of everything that he's done. And so following God means we're increasingly learning to see ourselves the way that God does. I want to try to bring this home to us today in a, a way that we could all participate like a physical act of prayer. So this is going to be an all-play group activity here for a second. Even if you're like me, like I don't love participating when speakers ask that, but I'm the speaker, so I get to ask that. So don't be like me and be like, oh, I'm not doing whatever it is he's going to ask me. Just like go with it. I'm not going to embarrass you. Uh, Here's what I want to ask. Would everybody hold out your hand in front of you like this? We're all going to do it. We're all going to be embarrassed together. Um, Or you're not going to be embarrassed. I've talked too long about this. Okay. (laughs) Hold it out in front of you like this. And then I want you to close it into a fist, okay? And then I want you to look at your fist for a second. And what I want you to picture is in your fist uh, are all those sins and those mistakes and those issues that you have that still haunt you. And if you're struggling to know what those things are, Imagine I just started listing things that are true about you. When I got to the one that kind of makes you want to hang your head in a group, that's the one, okay? So I want you to just picture that in your fist. And here's what I want you to do with your fist. I want you to squeeze it as tight as you can, uh, like you're trying to crush all of those mistakes and sins, okay? This is what the enemy of our souls tries to get us to do. Keep squeezing. Don't stop squeezing. Keep squeezing really hard. What the enemy tries to get us to do is to think, if you could just focus so intensely on all that stuff, all those mistakes and flaws and those sins and those issues and those things you've done, the stuff that's done to you, if you just obsess about them and make up for them, keep squeezing, don't stop. You just carry them around with you, back of your head, always there. Carry them into every relationship that you have. Just work really hard to overcome them. Keep squeezing. Like if just one day you could crush all those things, then you'll be worthy. Like you could never just trust Christ alone with this stuff. You got to contribute something to the equation, so you just need to keep focusing, keep making up for all that stuff. Keep squeezing. Are you squeezing? What's happening to your hand right now? Does it hurt a little bit? Are you hoping I will end this exercise? <laughs> I'm not sure how, long or how much longer I can keep squeezing. But here's the too good to be true news. When Jesus comes into our life, like before you and I were even born, he actually dealt with everything in our hand right now. Right? You understand that? Like every last thing on the cross. And he comes into our life and he says, hey, it's done. Would you just trust in me alone? Not in your efforts to make up for this stuff? 
And could you just relax your hand? Just relax your hand for a second. Do you physically feel the relief in your fingers and in your hand? Doesn't that feel so much better? Do you know what's true? A fist is really only good for one thing, isn't it? But an open hand is about the most useful thing on the planet. When we hold on to shame or guilt, our soul becomes a fist. And our life it becomes very unuseful and not very fun. We can do that one thing pretty well, but that's about it. And when we trust Christ and his sufficiency, the possibilities become endless and the amount of stuff that he opens up to us, the dream that he has for us is the most beautiful thing, but it just, it won't fit inside our closed fist. And so we have to let some of that stuff go. God's saying to Israel in Zechariah's day, he's saying through Paul in his day, and he's saying to you in this day, would you stop holding on to those past mistakes? Would you stop trying to make up for them? Would you stop walking in that shame and would you just relax your hand a little? Because there's some really great stuff I have for you. God, we come to you. um, This feels too good to be true. It feels like we're getting away with something to trust you with all of that stuff. And yet we see how our efforts to make up for it only make it worse. And so we do, we, we put our faith in you. We are thankful for the ways that you've covered over every last mistake we have made or will make. Would you empower us to believe it and to walk in it free of shame, free of guilt, trusting what you have done alone? Amen. Together.